Well, we can turn back to the chapter we read, Ruth chapter 2. I'd like us to think uh, from the second half of the chapter, verses 13 to 23, uh, under the title, as you can see on the screen, um, Ruth's Reaction and Report. You can just read verse 13 again. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Well, as we read in the chapter, Ruth was surprised at the kindness of Boaz. She herself knew several reasons why um, such a response was not um, likely to happen because after all uh, by, by race she belonged to a very strong enemy of Israel she was a Moabitess and between Israel and Moab there was cons constant hostility and she could have imagined uh, that people would be suspicious of her. I mean, why is she here? And that kind of thing. But anyway, we can see that she was uh, very surprised and, of course, very grateful for the way that Boaz interacted with her. And uh, his kindness was both practical and verbal. The practical aspect of it is just seen in the way that he provided for her. She gleaned in his field and she ended up with quite a lot of barley to take home. Indeed, the amount is so large that it indicates that Ruth was a, quite a strong woman to have carried it home. But the, that was a practical side of the, the um, kindness that he showed, but there was also his verbal kindness. And we can see that in the verses prior to verse 13, especially down in verse 12, where he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And I suppose if we were to speak about this uh, dialogue uh, in New Testament language, uh, what we have here is a mature believer giving encouragement to a new believer. Um, Boaz <clears throat> has been a leading figure in the community for a long time and part of the reason for his stature and his prominence in the community was his uh, godliness. And yet he was quite prepared uh, to speak um, nicely but also spiritually 
to Ruth, the new believer, whom he recognizes as one, as we can see from the words I just read from verse 12, when he describes her as coming to take refuge under the wings of God, which he likens God to a mother bird uh, providing protection and heat and so on uh, for Ruth. And as she listened to him, I suppose it was a kind of assurance that she got from her own statement in the previous chapter when she had said to Naomi, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Well, here we have uh, the first words, as far as I know, of one of her people to Ruth. And the first words that she hears, as far as the book itself is concerned, is these words from Boaz, basically telling her that she's accepted among God's people. He's almost saying to her, the choice you made is fulfilled. You belong to us. Even although you didn't start off with us, you belong to us. And because you said you made that choice, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. It's happened. And that must be very encouraging to Ruth, mustn't it? And it's a reminder to us of the importance of giving encouragement and comfort and so on. And I suppose there's different ways of doing it, but there's one essential feature of it, and that is we must use words. It's impossible to give it without using words. Of course, we can write the words and send them in one way or other. And as we know today, there's options, letter, email, text message, much more opportunities than Boaz had. We don't even know if Boaz could write. But the one thing uh, we do know about him is he knew how to speak and when to speak and what to say. So I'd like us to think today about comfort. Because that's what Ruth says to him, isn't it? There in verse 13. I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me. It kind of implies that she was needing comfort. And she received it from this man. And after we have thought a bit about comfort, well, think of the consequences of Boaz's comfort in the life of Naomi. That it brought confidence to her. 
So these words spoken in the field of Boaz. These were their consequences. Comfort for someone who needed it. And confidence for someone else who needed it. So, comfort. Well, comfort, as we know, is very prominent in the spiritual life. And uh, we can see that in different ways in the Bible. An obvious one that might come to mind is the name that Jesus chose for the Holy Spirit. He could have, I suppose, used lots of names to describe the Holy Spirit. But as he was leaving the world on the night in which he would later be betrayed, and as he was with his disciples in the upper room, he told, that, he told them that he was going to send to them another comforter. Both words and that description are important because the word another means another of the same kind. He could have sent, I suppose, a comforter who would be different. And that, no doubt, would have been useful as well, but he actually indicated that the comforter that would come would be exactly the same as himself. So, the Holy Spirit since he always lives up to his name, one of the things he must do is comfort. And therefore, it's one of the things that we should expect from him. I mean, listen to it. I mean, he's always consistent. He doesn't change. So if he showed comfort in the past, he'll show comfort in the present. If he was sent as the comforter, then we should expect comfort to come from him. And that's one example in the Bible of the importance of comfort in the spiritual life. But there's plenty others. Isaiah, there in chapter, he's, he, Isaiah's descriptions of his ministry are quite interesting. As to what he was called to do. And if we make our way through the book, we find different descriptions of it. But one of the one things that he was told to do by God was, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And it's enough, of course, for God to say it once. But for God to say it twice indicates, if it's right to speak of God in this way, it indicates it has more importance to communicate comfort. When he says there, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. I suppose one way of looking at what the Bible says about comfort is just to ask questions of different things. So I'm just going to do that. Five questions here and give the Bible answers to them. And the first one is, how would we describe the mission of Jesus? Well, I suppose the best person to speak about his mission is himself. And there's a description that he gave of himself in Nazareth when he quoted from the prophet Isaiah. 
And he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's Jesus' own mission. And of course, the mourning there is is more than just um, what we could call mourning at a bereavement. The mourning there just covers everything in life that makes people sad and downcast, all the problems caused by sin. And it's an important thing for us to remember that sinners need comfort. And therefore, Jesus, that was his mission. One aspect of it was to bring comfort to those who are distressed, for whom life has been hard, who find frustration, disappointment, and all that kind of thing can be traced to sin. But anyway, that's the mission of Jesus. And the second question is, what happens when a sinner repents? Well, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1 tells us. It says there, I will give thanks to you, Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. There's Isaiah speaking about God. And God has, we might say, two attitudes uh, to every one of which is shown to every person in the world. What's his, his attitude before conversion and what his attitude is after conversion? Before, before conversion, the Isaiah says, God was angry. Angry with me, he says. After conversion, God comforts him. Now, the word comfort, we have to be careful that we understand its meaning. The last four letters of the word tell us its meaning. It's to fortify. It's to strengthen. It's to help. It's not just to make things feel easy. So Jesus says, or Isaiah says there, When a person turns from their sins and trusts in God, trusts in Jesus, comfort is what's provided. And it's not comfort for five minutes, or even for five days. It's comfort possible all the way. And that's not surprising because the Holy Spirit is the comforter. So that's two questions. Question number three, 
What can we expect in difficult places? Well, we read from Psalm 23, 4. We sung it. I hope that you and me sang it with meaning. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Those kind of valleys in Israel where death was likely were, of course, very dangerous for sheep because of wild animals prowling about. And um, it wouldn't have done the sheep much good to look at the other sheep, would it? I mean, how big has a flock got to be in order to destroy one wolf? It doesn't really matter how many sheep there are. So, all the best comfort, I want to put it this way, that each of these sheep could have given to the other sheep was for all of them to stay close to the shepherd. But we can expect comfort in difficult places because, as the psalmist says there in Psalm 23, the shepherd's always there with his rod and staff. Sometimes we imagine the rod and the staff is for the use against the sheep. And maybe at times it was used to prod them. But it was never used violently against them. But it was used violently against wild animals. And as we face difficulties in life, which could be likened to attacks by wild animals, the shepherd knows how to deal with them. And one blow from him, far better than all the blows of the sheep. So we've asked, how do we describe the mission of Jesus? What happens when a sinner repents? What can we expect in difficult places? And the fourth question is, what is it like to be in a healthy gospel church? Here's a description of a healthy gospel church from Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Five things are said there about church. Peace, edification, reverence, comfort, and numerical growth. They knew the comfort of the comforter. must have been a very special time to have had that kind of experience. The last question I want to ask is this. Should we include comfort in a benediction? Well, Paul does. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, he says... Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort 
and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I mean, there in that benediction, the one who has given eternal comfort also gives his people timely comfort. So we can see that comfort is a very important um, feature of the spiritual life. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because um, the Bible is, these are only some samples of comfort in the Bible. God himself describes himself as the God of all comfort. So it's not possible for us to say that uh, any of us are in a situation where God's comfort cannot reach. He's a God of all comfort. And much of his comfort is just found in the Bible. And of course, the Bible is, uh, as we know, the Bible's a living book. And comfort is a living experience. When we read the Bible, it's not like reading a history book. It's a book that speaks to us. It speaks to us in all kinds of ways. It probes our inner lives, reaches far further down than anything else can into our souls. And one of the things that Bibles is provided us for is comfort. That we, through the scriptures, through the comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. And if my hope is low today, there's only one reason basically for that. I'm not using the Bible the way it should. And that goes for all of us. The Bible is a source of comfort. And it's given to all kinds of Christians. I mean, there's a man mentioned in, in Second Corinthians who had, be, who had been disciplined. And Paul says to the Corinthians that their responsibility is to comfort him. That the discipline is over, comfort him. And as I said earlier, all that is done through speech. And even when someone dies, I mean, Paul writing to the Thessalonians, and he says that the day is coming when the dead in Christ will rise. And then all of us who are believers will go to be forever with the Lord. And he says to the Thessalonians, and it's a command. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And of course, that raises a question, doesn't it, Rod? For each of us to ask ourselves, Who have we comforted recently? And who do we know that we have comforted? Because like Ruth, 
If somebody gets it, they will acknowledge it. And that's what happened with Ruth. One man said about these kind of words, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul. These words, which at once indicate friendship and nourish piety, are doubly pleasant. Comfort. Some ways to do it. Because the strange thing is, God tends to speak through channels. Suppose we could imagine the government using BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV, and Channel Four, and Channel Five, and all the others as channels for it to convey its message. Well, God has got channels. And who are the channels? The channels are its people. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Isaiah, that's your job. If Isaiah won't do it, is God going to do it instead of him? When Paul's writing the Thessalonians, comfort one another with these words. If the Thessalonians won't share it, is God going to shout them down from heaven? The answer is no. We're channels, channels of comfort. How do we do that? Well, there's lots of possible suggestions could be made, but we speak about our experiences. And speak about normal experiences. One the Puritan said, it's a great comfort and strengthening to a godly man when such as that are of a discerning spirit approve of his condition. We can only know the condition if we speak about it. We don't speak about it in order to manipulate comfort. We speak about it because we want to speak about it. As the psalmist says, come ye that fear God, I'll tell you what he's done for my soul. That's not necessarily what he did 45 years ago, but perhaps what he did 45 minutes ago. The God of the present. Tell one another, you never know who could get comfort from your words. 
It may be the most spiritually experienced person in the congregation who gets comfort from what we say. Perhaps Boaz was comforted by what Ruth said. If we were to speak about our experiences. It is improper in society for a person to speak about himself or herself. But it's not improper in the spiritual life. Because we are speaking about the acts of God. What he has done. We're to speak about Jesus and his promises. Great and precious promises. Watch the news every day. Quite depressing. Read Jesus' promises. Never depressing. Take two or three a day. This is for me. All these promises. Yea and amen. In Christ. You know, Jesus bases his credibility on the fulfillment of his promises. Has he said and will he not do? Sometimes, of course, we um, just get comfort by ourselves with God. And how do we do that? Well, I I would suggest that when we do that, we take the Bible with us. The Bible is the roadmap into the presence of God. If I decide to jump into the car and say I'm heading off somewhere and I just head down the first street I see, how far will I get? And I think sometimes we can do that in the spiritual life. I think we'll have a time of prayer. And off we go not knowing where we're going. And sometimes we can, when we're going to say to confess our sins, off we go. But it's far better, I would suggest, to take the map. We sang one of them at the start of the service, Psalm 130. Or take Psalm 51, a roadmap for confession of sin. Same when we're meditating on God. We won't get very far if we try to meditate on God without the Bible.
The psalmist in Psalm 1 tells us, doesn't he? How he meditated in the law of the Lord. And God has provided all these wonderful roadmaps for our comfort. Also, our faith needs to be active. I read this quote this week by this man, fellow called a man called John Colquhoun, famous Scottish theologian of the 18th century. But he said this: "It is a part." He's speaking about himself. It is a part of the office of faith to accept and to hand spiritual comfort to the holy soul. So a Christian is a holy soul and the function of that person's faith is to accept from the Bible and to hand spiritual comfort to his own soul. That's what our faith is meant to do. It goes up to heaven, as it were, takes hold of something and brings it down and applies it to our soul. Calhoun went on to say about a believer, amidst all his inward and outward troubles, by his frequent actings of particular trust, he must derive strong consolation from the life, death, resurrection, intercession, covenant, words, offices, victories, and relations of Jesus Christ. So my faith and your faith has to go up to heaven through the word of God and take a hold of things about Jesus and bring them down into our own soul. Cahoon also went on to say that this believer must also trust that the blessed spirit loves him and that as his gracious comforter he will bring all things to his remembrance. So the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. What's he going to bring to our remembrance? Jesus. And if Jesus doesn't come, what does it matter what else comes? And of course, we can add to the Jesus and to the Spirit, God the Father, our Heavenly Father, who wants to bless His children. And as Paul says, he has with Christ, he was freely given us Christ, will he not freely give us all things? So how comfortable should we be? Ruth got comfort, and it really helped her. didn't only help her, of course. It helped Naomi. I suppose it was quite a common sight 
in Bethlehem to see, because uh, that was the custom of the time. So it's quite a common sight to see a woman walking down the street carrying some barley. But it all depends on what you'd expect the woman to be carrying. Who would have expected Ruth to come home carrying so much barley? Where would she get it from? But there she is, walking home to Naomi's house. And therefore, when Naomi saw Ruth, who had been comforted by Boaz, she saw two great signs that really helped her at that moment. Because remember, Naomi is still a widow. Naomi is still the woman who has come back empty. But as Ruth comes back through the door that day, well, there's something different now about the emptiness. There's never been this much barley in the house before. And where did you get it from? From Boaz. What an extraordinary provision. And it changes Naomi's view of providence. Instead of going around saying, Mara, Mara, empty, empty, she now starts saying, Blessed. Blessed be the man who helped you. And when she found out it was Boaz, she gets even more enthusiastic in verse 20. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She kind of regarded herself as dead before her time. But here she was getting provided for by her God. So she got a different view of providence, doesn't she? And she praises him for his faithful care. It's not just those who are vivacious and alive, but even those who feel dead. He cares for them. And she sensed God was opening a door. I mean, Boaz, as she says herself, is only one of the possible redeemers who can rescue her family from their poverty. But why has God arranged for Boaz to be doing all this? She sensed God was opening a door. What confidence she got from the comfort that Boaz gave. And as we close, just a couple of applications. In this chapter, you could look at different things. You can look at the humility of, of, of Ruth as she calls herself a servant. You can look at the compassion of Boaz and see the work of God's grace in his life. 
And these things, of course, are very appropriate. But I think it's more important than even to consider these two details just to think about God. The God who is, as we've just mentioned, compassionate, faithful, wise, the controller of providence, who's at work behind the scenes, controlling the movements of people so they happen to be in the right place at the right time. That's our God. I mean, God never makes a mistake. Never once. Certain things have gone wrong in each of our lives, from our perspective. But God has never made a mistake. And it's very important to remember that. He understands, he knows, he works, he cares, he helps. Sin brings in all kinds of complications into our lives. But it never means that God makes a mistake. He's always the wise God. And the second application from the chapter, I think, is this. And that, and I'll stop with this, the Old Testament is constantly pointing to Jesus. Does that sometimes by prophecies, sometimes by promises, and sometimes by pictures. Out of this chapter, we have a remarkable picture of Jesus. Boaz, the compassionate, wealthy man, who comes to an unworthy exile from another country and starts to open her heart by his amazing compassion. And that's what Jesus does to unworthy sinners. Just starts to open their heart. And they don't realize it's happening necessarily. Any more than Ruth did. But it was happening. Shall we pray? We thank you, Lord. That